Good afternoon, everyone. It is February the 5th, 2017. Welcome to the 31st Fireside Chat. Uh, another busy afternoon, a lot of questions to get through. Um, Tom, we're going to start, as we always seem to be doing recently, with um, information about the experiments. <laughs> uh, everyone's asking us, everyone's asking all of us. We, we better go there, first of all. Um, have you received any feedback from physicists who have announced to him that they will do any of the proposed experiments? How's it going? I have not uh, received any physicists uh, saying that they will do the experiments, but um, it'd be a little, that would be a little early. I wouldn't expect anybody to want to jump on it that quickly. We haven't yet really advertised it out to the universities. One of the things we're doing first, before we even try too much to uh, advertise to universities, is take what I did in the MBTLA and put that into a proper uh, physics speak so that it can be published uh, as a as a, a physics paper you know and of course once we put it into physics speak only physicists and maybe some mathematicians will be able to read it and make any sense out of it but if you don't do that then the physicists really don't want to look at it because that's their primary form of you know talking to each other about experiments. So we've been doing that. And I did have um, uh, a physicist from JPL and a, uh, a mathematician, actually uh, uh, from Caltech. And his specialty is Bayesian statistics, which fits in perfectly with the, uh, you know, the, the uh, statistical uh, probabilistic model that I was talking about. So the two of them and uh, a couple of other people, myself, are in the process of writing this physics paper. And it's probably 80, 90% done. There's a few things about it yet that, uh, that uh, I'd like to change, but then I'm getting pushed to spend all my attention on uh, the next six weeks in this trip, so I'm going to not be able to spend much time on it, but it's coming along. So if it doesn't get published in the next few weeks, it probably will soon after I get back. Anyway, so that's coming. Now, when that's coming, we'll have something that we can pass around to physicists and physics departments, because if you tell a bunch of physics, you know, people to go look at, what is it, uh, like, you know, six hours of video, uh, to see the experiments, that just isn't going to work very well. Most of them uh, probably wouldn't get first past the first three slides before it would sound like something that wasn't physics. So putting it into physics speak is, is kind of the first step. So I think that after we do that, uh, we are likely to have some more success, some more takers. At least we'll have something in their language that we can put out uh, to them. Now, we have had the, the one the mathematician at uh, Caltech. He went to some of his um, uh, co uh, workers, I guess, people that he knew, physicists at Caltech, and uh, tried to get an introduction there and get them to pay attention to it. And he started at the bottom of the barrel as far as the, the new physicists in, you know, the ones still working on tenure. And uh, they found it real interesting but they didn't have the leeway to go off and work on whatever they wanted to work on because they you know, weren't tenured yet and they weren't senior enough. So then he started going up the chain and, and I'm not sure how that's going, but the main person he needed to talk to was out on 
some sort of extended travel and wasn't going to come back for a while. So we are working on getting it into physics departments uh, slowly. But again, if he can hand a, a paper in physics speak to these guys, it's going to be a lot smoother sailing than if you tell them to go watch a, a long video. So work is progressing on that front. I'm hopeful we'll get these experiments uh, done or at least somebody willing to do them you know, this year. But it's going to take a little bit of a bit of time. I didn't expect that, you know, they would come, you know, banging on the door, you know, anxious to do the experiments. For most physicists, they've never heard of Tom Campbell or MBT or uh, any such thing. And uh, so first is got to get the toe in the door before we uh, can <laughs> like to get the toe, get the toe in the door. Yeah. Before we can, uh, you know, get the first base with them. So, so it's coming along. I'm still hopeful for it. I haven't seen any roadblocks or anything that would uh, get in the way. And we do have from, we, we have done these um, overviews of the experiments on DVD. So anyone that's watching this now at a later date, if you want a copy of the, of the, uh, the disc, the overview of the experiments, some of the experiments, then we do have those available to send out to academics and, and physics departments. So that's, 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 that's good that uh, they're available. Yeah. Yeah, we went into the, uh, the what is it, the first four parts, four of seven, which is where the the, um, the experiments were talked about. And we we kind of trimmed that down. We edited, you know, some of that out to where we were just focused in on, on the experiments. And then we made a DVD. And we did that so that people could, perhaps in a physics department or some other place where they had a group of people who might be interested because physicists do these experiments generally in groups. They don't just, it's not just one lone guy in a lab. It's usually four or five people work together to get these done. So that way they could have four or five people, you know, sit around a large screen TV or something and play a DVD, and then they could all see it at the same time and so on. That uh, might work better than to just say, well, go out to YouTube and, you know, watch watch these experiments. So that's why we put it on the DVD. But the DVDs will be available to to, uh, I guess if you're a physicist or somebody who knows physicists and you want to pass it to them, Keith, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but then it's free. We just pass it out for free. But if you're just interested because you'd like to have one, then we're basically charging you about, you know, cost to make the DVD plus the cost to mail it. You know, it's still not going to be very much. It's going to be pretty uh, inexpensive, but we'll charge you a little something. It will, be, it will be a little something, Tom. I mean, we, we have had um, a first run made and uh, we'll, we'll have those, well, we'll have them this week. I, I'm talking live, obviously, down the line when people watching this, then they are, they are currently available for them now. So, um, perfect. Right, we're going to move on with the questions. Ingeborg, you're going to ask the first question. After that, we're going to go to um, a newbie uh, for that, for the next question. But Ingeborg, the floor is yours for the first question. You, you can hear me? Or hmm? Yes. Yes, okay. So hello, Tom. Thank you for being here and uh, that I can ask my question. So um, did you ever come across something like a mental space of a nation? Uh, I mean, presuppose that we are all connected. A mental space where the self-concept of a group of individuals who call themselves members of Nation X can be seen as a film. And is it appropriate to say that an individuated unit of consciousness can entangle with such a content? 
Uh, yes, this this concept of group consciousness um, basically it divides itself down into any any group to which you feel that you are a member. Okay, and it that means country. Uh, at a smallest level, it would mean family. There's a certain amount of group consciousness within a family, within a group of friends. See, any place where you're in tent recognizes that you are a member of a group, then you and those other members in that group kind of share mental space based around the interests of that group. So if you work for um, you know, Volkswagen or Mercedes-Benz, then there's a certain corporate group there that uh, you know has a certain culture in that corporation the way they work, their expectations, the way they dress, you know, the way they interact with each other. And that would be a group culture uh, within, say, Mercedes-Benz uh, you know, automobile factory. And you might have a different culture in the management side than you would have in the, you know, the people who are actually, you know, building things in the, in the assembly side would maybe have a little different culture. So you have subcultures inside of bigger cultures. And yes, at a, na at a national level, you have the same thing. And the more the, the people of that nation are focused on their nation as a group, then the stronger that, that um, shared mental space is going to be. So if nationalism is a real big thing in your country now, and everybody's kind of thinking of themselves in terms of you know, national interests, then that's a very strong group mind, a very strong group think that is going on then, say, with, with, with a country that's very nationalistic. If the country's not nationalistic, then it's kind of a weak uh, group affiliation, if you will. So it depends on the, on the people, on the group, but every group, um, you know, members of the same religion, members of the same basketball team, members of the same, you know, university all kind of form these these groups. Now, when you get it up at really high levels, like uh, members of the human race or members of a major culture, then you end up with what Carl Jung called archetypes, you see? And that's basically the group mind at a, at a higher level um, than, say, family. Then you run into archetypes. Now, you can also get a, a, a group called female and a group called male. And the more you identify with those groups, the more you take on, you know, the, the mental space of the group rather than just your own personal mental space. So we're, we are connected to all sorts of groups all the time. And we have special affinity for those groups that we see ourselves a part of. <clears throat> Likewise, it's not just uh, physically being in the group, like, you may be a member of a particular culture, but if you don't really uh, attach to that culture, it's like, well, this is the culture I live in, but I just, I'm not a part of it. You know, I don't uh, have the same beliefs. I don't have the same attitudes. Uh, I'm a fish out of water here in this culture. Then you're not part of that group mind. You, you kind of disassociate yourself from it. So it's not just where you live and what's going on physically. It's what your mind connects to. You see, and we do all this without thinking about it.
So yes, there are there would be national uh, kind of a national mind, if you like, a, nas- a national uh, group, and it's the it's the sum of all the individual units of consciousness that are kind of connected together under the whatever it is the group's about, you know, whether it's nationality or whether it's about you know where you work, uh, and those people tend to think more alike. People who join that group in six months or a year start to think like that group. They start to have similar attitudes, similar ideas. They tend to dress in similar ways. Um, you know, you can you can tell when you see groups that they all are, uh, you know, they, they kind of have the same culture that's that's driving them. You know, IBM was famous for that. You know, you work for IBM, you were you were in the the IBM culture. It was a very buttoned down um, sort of culture. And they got uh, some notoriety for their the strength of their their culture. So that's a corporate culture. And corporate cultures can also be uh, cultures of uh, exploitation, of uh, you know using people. Abusing people—that can be the culture as well. And when you get that kind of a of a culture, you'll find that it's not just at the top where your top people are like that, but it works all the way down. So even down in the mailroom, the guy who runs the mailroom is abusive of the other people that work in the mailroom. You see, because that's just part of the culture. Uh, and the culture, usually in a corporation, of course, starts at the top. It's the way the you know it's it's the way the managers treat people but that that'll percolate down and pretty soon everybody's kind of in that same mindset of being abusive or on the other side being kind being helpful um that's yes the group mind is a very interesting thing because we are we are members of all sorts of groups that we associate with the family and the friends being the the smallest and the most i guess basic for people and uh, we tend to become like our friends we tend to you know, use the same phrases, have the same metaphors, um, whatever. It's just the way it works. So the same thing with, uh, you know, with mobs, right? When a mob gets together because they're all angry about something, well, that feeds each other, and they all get even more angry than they were before because they're feeding on each other's, on each other's angry and anger, and they associate with that group. So it's that same sort of thing going on that uh, we humans, because we're all netted, um, attach ourselves. And the more we're attached, the more we kind of emulate the group. Okay. Uh, Tom, next we're going to go to Faith, who is new to the Fireside Chat. Uh, Faith, if you're ready to go, welcome. And uh, the floor is yours to ask for your question. She's having struggling to unmute. So Thank we'll come back to Faith in a second. Let's go on now to another newbie. Let's go to Nathan. Nathan, you ask your question. In the background, we'll work out what to do with Faith and get that working. But uh, Nathan, welcome to the Fireside Chat. It's all yours. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so, Tom, you've made it really clear in the past how we can use our intent to modify future probability and help heal people. And you've also talked about how sometimes sicknesses or things are given to people in order for them to learn something. So we're going to run up against, you know, that with the larger consciousness system, or even if we have the will and the intent to take that sickness away, it'll be put right back later. So a question Mm -hmm. came up for me is how can we sense the intent of the larger consciousness system, so to speak? So we're not bumping up against it or working against it rather 
almost like intuitively working for or with it rather than, you know, does the question make sense? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, when in the beginning, okay, when you're relatively new at this, the best way is to proceed with some caution. Okay. So you, you have somebody and they come to you and they have a physical problem and they, they ask you to heal them. Well, that would sound like they want to be healed. On the other hand, there may be a, this issue, this health issue they have may be part of the path they're on that they have to learn something that they have to deal with or that somebody around them has to deal with. Um, just because they ask uh, to be healed doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going on at their being level. That's just what's going on at their intellectual level. So you need to start with a little bit of caution and try to get a sense for the whole person rather than just look at the medical issue, look at the whole person issue. And if you have a chance to just talk with them some, like if there's somebody that you can that you can chat with, then just have a little chat with them and get a sense of who they are and what they are and, and where they've been and, and uh, kind of how they feel about life and that sort of things, which you don't have to ask direct questions. You can read between the lines pretty well when you're when you're uh, talking to other people. So that's one thing that you can do is try to take a broader picture and not just focus in on the, on the uh, health issue. The second thing is go ahead and, and start your healing the way you normally do. Let's say you change, you know, dark things that you've defined as, as not good health into light things, which are our good health. And you're doing it uh, that way. Then see how easy or hard that is. If you get rid of all that black, unhealthy stuff, and it just doesn't seem to go away, it just keeps coming back. You clean it up, and there it is again, you see. So you clean it up again, and you have a hard time making it stick, making it stay. Uh, that's your first indicator that there's more going on to it than just this person randomly got ill. There's, there's more things feeding that illness than that. If the person just randomly got ill, you know, they just happened to be in a room where somebody sneezed and they just happened to get the, you know, the cold or the flu or whatever it is, then it's usually much easier to heal. You'll take away that, that uh, dark, that negative sickness and it's gone. You just take it away and, you know, it stays away. It stays gone. It doesn't tend to persist. Uh, then when you get it all cleaned up, look back at it, you know, an hour later and see, is it all back the way it was or is it still pretty much cleaned up, you see? And if it's right back the way it was, that's your second sign that there's something more going on than uh, just, a, again, a random illness that they just happen to have but don't have any issues, really, that reflecting that illness, they just happen to get one. So that's the way you can tell. That's initially the best way to do it. Those those three things. Get a bigger picture. If you can, you can't always do that. Sometimes it's just somebody tells you about somebody else who needs to be healed and you really don't have a direct connection with them. Um, but you you can see whether how much trouble it is to do the healing. And if it seems to keep regenerating itself, that's usually because it's not really supposed to be healed. What I often do then, rather than heal that, I then change from you know dark to light. Instead, I say, 
here's some energy. Here's some, some, um, some good, positive energy. Do with it as you will. It's yours to use. You can use it to heal yourself or not. You could use it for any other purpose, just to feel better or to feel good or, you know, make, make yourself uh, feel more comfortable or whatever. But then I become nonspecific with its use. And I talk with them a little bit and, and uh, kind of see where they are relative to this illness, get a sense for them. But that's maybe a little more advanced that the beginner wouldn't do. But anyway, you can do something very, very general for them rather than, you know, something to make them just comfortable. It may not be healing them, but it make them feel better or give them a better attitude or a, a more easily accept their illness or have a, have a more positive uh, viewpoint toward it. And then when you're a little more advanced and those other things are easy, the thing to do would be to go talk with them. Now this, you can, you know, I said earlier, you could talk with them like face to face. But now this is like a similar thing. You're finding out about that illness and how they're attached to it and what it means to them and what it means to the people around them. But it's not face-to-face. It's consciousness to consciousness instead. And uh, you can do that. And that's actually even better than the face-to-face because when you talk consciousness to consciousness, you're talking with their being level, not with their intellect. So you get a real straight story of exactly what's going on rather than having to sift through a lot of intellectual stuff about their image of what they think or what they're worried about or you know what they want to have happen, that kind of thing. You actually get the real story. So then when you talk conscious to consciousness, you can very quickly sort out um, what's going on with the illness, how they feel about it, what does that illness mean to them, what's... Uh, you know, what are, the, what are the things pushing it? And uh, then you know whether you should leave it alone or not. And sometimes it's hard to leave it alone because you have a lot of empathy for the person. They're maybe in a lot of pain or they're, they're, they're not really learning their lesson or maybe the lesson's for somebody else and not even for them. You know, it's hard to say. And you have a lot of empathy for that. And sometimes that's difficult. And if you want to, you can force the issue. You can force your will on it and heal them anyway if you're strong enough. But you usually find that that doesn't really work in the long run. What happens is if you if you have so much empathy for them, you feel like you really want to help them because they're suffering so much. So you force it and heal them anyway, even though they do have a lesson with that pain. That lesson will just pop back out in another way you know, a couple of months later, and I've been in that situation and I've done it enough times to know that in the long term, it just doesn't work out. There's somebody and he has stomach cancer, but he has, you know, three little children and, you know, other kinds of issues. So you really want to help him and say, well, if he could get over that, maybe he could learn his lesson in some other way that wasn't quite so destructive, you know, of his family. So you heal him anyway. And stomach cancer goes away. And three months later, he gets some rare disease, uh, you know, it's just as just as deadly, you know, just a problem. And maybe you heal that, too. And then, uh, you know, three months after that, he gets run over by, a, you know, a car while he's riding his bicycle. You know, it's just one thing will happen after another. So then you realize that all you're doing is putting it off, changing it, really just making it more inefficient, making the whole system more inefficient. So it's better just to leave it alone.
but you can do all those things. That's how you learn is by experience. So until you, until you uh, have the experience, you're just guessing after you've done it a few times, then you kind of get the sense more of when to quit and even to quit when you don't want to, when you really want to do something for them, but to let it alone anyway. But you won't learn that until you go ahead and try to force the issue to be the way you want it and then find out that it doesn't really work well in the long run. Thank you so much, Tom. That was such a rich answer. And and it gives me a lot to think about. And just as a quick follow-up, there's a part of me that wants to have a type of connection with the larger consciousness system. So I know that that's the situation before even going through the whack-a-mole process. Or, mm -hmm. you know. So is that something that's even possible? That was just a follow-up question that's coming up for me. Thank you. It is possible, but it's problematical. And that is that you know, one of my uh, bylines is you have to always be open-minded and always be skeptical. Just getting messages, um, just getting messages is not something you can rely on. You have to actually do the do the work. You have to go through the process. A lot of it is going to be trial and error. You get better, of course. Your trial and error gets better. The more experience you have, you know, instead of 10 trials and 10 errors before you get it right. You know, you get it right on the second one. You get you get better at your trial and error. But you pretty much have to go through the experience route as opposed to the intellectual route because you're never really sure with that intellectual route. There's always going to be some um, uncertainty. All right, you ask the question, you know, larger conscious system, is this one I should work on? And you immediately get a yes or a no. Well, are you 100% sure that you weren't a part of that yes or no? Are you 100% sure that it wasn't some other entity or something that was putting that yes or no there? Because, see, all you get is data. You get it, just get information. And you have to interpret it. And you never get the source of the information. Information doesn't come coded with its source. It's just data. So the data you make up, your imagination, that's just data. The data that comes right from the LCS, that's just data. Data that comes from some other IUOC, that's just data. Data that comes from the collective consciousness, that's just data. And it all comes in and you get to interpret it. Well, is a yes really a yes? You don't know for sure exactly where that yes came from or where that no came from. Now, 90% of the chance, you'll have a good sense of it. Some you don't. There's always uncertainty. And because these, you know, healing and health, and particularly if it's something that's fatal that you're working on to change it, these are life and death matters, leaving that up to, well, you know, it's probably the way it is. <laughs> you know, so I, I won't bother healing because I got a no on that one. And it turns out that maybe that wasn't it at all, you see. So... That's why I go through all the processes, because I'm always skeptical of everything I get. And unless it's a, a something that you can do over and over again to where you get build confidence in a particular answer or solution, then most of the healing is a one-off. You know, it's, it's an individual person, and whether you got a yes or no with that person, has it's, it's just your first time with that person. It's not like... You know, anybody else has been just like that person. They're not. Everything's unique. 
So that means all of your answers are a one-off. And with one-offs, you I don't have a, that much certainty. I might have an 80%, 90% certainty, but that's generally not enough to make me take the shortcut and not go through the trouble to figure it out myself. So yeah, it, there's there's judgment calls there that you can make. So yes, you can get that yes, no up front, but mostly you'll find out in the larger kinds of dealing with the larger kinds of system, dealing with it intellectually is not really the way you want to go. You want to deal with it more experientially rather than with intellectually. There's a lot less uncertainty that way. Thank you so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Okay, Tom, listen, we're going to go back to Ingeborg for I think uh, she has another question that really fits into uh, what you were just saying. So Ingeborg, it's yours. Yes, thank you. It's about the quality of data. <laughs> so can individual units of consciousness as a result from individual trans-dimensional experiences, I would call it, create functioning parallel universes that differ totally from the content of the larger consciousness system. I mean, the content or space where the, the main community of the larger consciousness systems stays. Okay, now you say, can, a, can an individuated unit of consciousness create yeah. these? Yes, a cre create a total, you know, <laughs> separate functioning universe with other with another rule set. Is that possible? Oh, is that possible? Well, you know, kind of theoretically that's possible in the sense that we are consciousness and we really have all the attributes that the LCS has because we're pretty much the same thing. So we are small small, somewhat limited, you know, uh, subsets of the LCS itself. So in that sense, we do have kind of a, a grander a possibility, but most of that now is going to be theoretical. It's not going to be actual because most people do not have that ability to envision something that large and complex and maintain that, that vision you know, long enough for it to be stable and concrete. So what a individuated unit of consciousness would do, instead of creating a whole universe or a whole, you know, world system, would be more likely to create just a piece of a world system, just a, a um, an environment, if you will, that it can interact in. And yes, you can do that. And, uh, and a, a very simple example of that would be Bob Monroe in his, I think, first book talked about a park where he went. You see, that park where he went to relax and let go uh, was a creation of his. And he went back to that same park. And uh, maybe he walked different paths, you know, around that park. Or maybe he, uh, you know, went for a swim if there was a lake. You know, I mean, he may have done other things each time he was there. But that, that map that he was creating was his map. And he could go and interact within that map with whatever was there, you know, whenever he wanted to. So that was a creation of his own. But you see, that's a much more simpler creation than an entire universe, you know, filled with individuals. Because if you're going to do a whole universe, then you have to keep all of that in mind. If you're the creator, then you need to keep all of that 
in your intent or it, it disappears. You see, now when your intent goes back to it, again, you create it on the fly as you need it. So when Bob went to his park and he, you know, decided to walk down toward the lake, then all the stuff that was behind him, maybe the mountains just disappeared. He was no longer generating, you know, that was not part of what his intent was doing. It was only what he was doing doing in front of him. So it's that sort of thing. You're, you create it as you go. You only create the parts you're interacting with while you're interacting with it. And the rest of it then is not created. So that's a little different than our universe is a little more complicated and goes to, to a lot more depth than that. So you can, in a limited way, yes, do that. And how limited a way? Well, that depends on the individual. You know, if, uh, if you're a, a beginner, then you can probably do just what Bob did. You know, you can probably make a park or a place or a library or someplace you go. That's just a nice, relaxing place for you to be. Or maybe it's a place where you meet other entities. And that would be your meeting place. And you can decorate it with whatever buildings or rooms or, uh, you know, architecture or anything that you want. That's probably more at, at, a, at an initial level, a beginning level. If you're going to uh, go at much more complicated than that, then you have a lot more to hold in your mind and in your intent, a lot more things to deal with. If you're going to put critters there that live there, you know, then if these critters aren't just cardboard cutouts that are just there, you know, when you want to see them, but otherwise you don't pay any attention to them, you see, then you'd have to worry about the critters and, and the critters would have some sort of evolution going on too. They would have some, something to do. Otherwise it's just a, like a, you're decorating the stage, you know, where a play is going on and you're putting props up and you're putting up, you know, cardboard cutouts of things and that sort of thing. It's more symbolic. So yes, limited, we can do that. But most of us IUOCs are, are pretty limited in that, uh, in that range. Thank you. That was really important. Thank you very much. Yes. All right. Now we're going to go down to Mike in Australia. Mike, I know it's early morning there. As always, you're going to have to go off to work or something, family, whatever it is next. So uh, I'm going to give you the chance to ask your, your next question, Mike. <coughs> Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it. Um, Tom, where do our thoughts come from? What's, what's the thing that's generating our thoughts? Well, in a word, consciousness. Conscious, you know, we are consciousness, and all of our thoughts, all of our memory, all of our analysis, uh, our judgments, you know, all of that is going on in consciousness. Uh, the brain doesn't have anything to do with that. The brain's just a virtual brain that sets constraints on what the consciousness has to work with. Um, so consciousness does all that. Now, how does consciousness do that? Well, consciousness is a digital information system, and all of that is information. So it uh, stores the information. It processes the information. And it makes judgments based on the information. It gets happy because of the information. It gets sad because of the information. It's all of these are, are reactions that it has to information. So it's consciousness as a manipulator, creator, and, and uh, you know, what um, processor of information. Thanks, Tom. 
Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, Mike. Good question. We're going to go now to um, Sveta. How are you doing over there? You ready? He's ready. Hello. Hello. Um, I have a question, but I struggle to phrase it. Maybe um, I will need your help to rephrase it if you understand the question. So um, I'll just read it. Um, Carl Jung says, it is high time that we realize that it is pointless to praise the light and preach it if nobody can see it. It is much more needful to preach the art of seeing. Uh, that was an aha moment for me on the importance of the little toe. And it's right to stand proud and not to get lost in the pure science of your model of reality. Mm -hmm. uh, does it make sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's, and it's quite correct. It's a, it's a, a very important point. And that is, yes, you can... If you talk above people, if you talk at a place where they can't process it, if you're interacting with people and they just can't process what you're, what you're telling them because they just don't have the experience, they haven't grown to the point that that really makes sense to them, where they can use the information, then you're not doing them any good. You actually are probably doing them some harm. You're frustrating them. You're making them feel, you know, inadequate because they can't understand what you're saying or they can't use it. And typically people then will just figure that you don't know what you're talking about either or it doesn't make any sense or you're nuts or some other kind of thing and they'll kind of write you off. But yes, you have to, all communications that you have have to start at the level and the place that the person you're trying to communicate is. So if, if they, you know, if you uh, have had a lot more experience than somebody else and you're trying to explain to them their experience, your experience, you can't start with telling them how you feel. You have to start with where they are, what they know, how they feel, and work from there toward what you feel, but always start with them working toward what it is you're trying to, to talk to them about. And sometimes... You just can't seem to make that work. Sometimes you just can't seem, you know, let's say they have beliefs and you talk to them, but you just can't get, you start where they are with the belief and say, okay, here we are with this belief. Now, how can we walk out of it? But you can't. They're so attached to that belief that you can't, you know, lead them out of that belief at all. Um, just to tell them that their belief is wrong, of course, is useless. That's like talk, talking to them about the light when they can't, you know, see it. So that's very important. Yes, we're here in this physical reality to interact with it, to interact with people, people of all sorts, not just our peers, but people who know more than us and people who know less than us. And we have to appreciate where each individual is and start from where they are if we want to be helpful to them. And then we don't tell them where to go or what to do or how to think. We start where they are and try to give them, oh, maybe some nudges or some, some encouragement or some extra options or ways of looking at things. And then we have to back off and let them make their own choices. You see, you can't really lead somebody through choices because even if they follow you, it's not their choices. And if it's not their choices, then they don't learn anything from it. So 
yes, uh, Carl Jung expressed something very important there. And that's that we always have to keep in mind that other people live in a different reality than we do. Everybody lives in their own personal reality. And you have to meet people in their reality if you're going to communicate with them. Okay. It, uh, it's above my league uh, to lead anybody or teach anybody. I was more um, concerned or even panicking about your uh, experiments because I'm concerned. I'm a, I, I want the best for you, but uh, I'm afraid if you go that way, you will forget about little talk. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no, that's not, uh, that won't happen. You see, it's, it's, okay. the, it's the individual people and their growth, their understanding, their becoming love. That's really what's important. That is the key thing. This physics thing is only important in that it feeds that. It's going to be a tool that will make it easier for people to grow up. When the high priests of our culture say that indeed uh, uh, this is a virtual reality and we're a subset of something that's non-physical, that's grander, more powerful, more you know whole than we are. We're just a piece of something. And that then is going to help a lot of people now take that step out to that possibility that otherwise would never go there. They just wouldn't. They just wouldn't go there because that sounds like that, uh, you know, that that mushy-headed, uh, you know, right brain stuff that doesn't make any sense. So they're not going to go there. But when the scientists say that's the way it is, that's the way our reality is. There's this non-physical system, and we're just a creation of that. Suddenly, millions, hundreds of millions of people will have the courage to step out into that and say, "Well, what is? You know, who am I?" in regards to that system. What am I, you know, what's my purpose? And now they're open for learning, for growing. They've opened up from, from where they were closed before. So the physics is a tool that will help people grow up. And that's really the only reason that it's, that it's important. But it's very important in that sense because I think that is the, one of the keys. That's one of the tipping points is to get the scientists to see this as a virtual reality and then see that consciousness is the computer and then see that love is the answer. And all of those things are logically connected to where if you get that first one, that this is a virtual reality, the other two consciousness, the computer and love is the answer are just logical, um, you know, logical steps. They don't take any, any leaps. Physicists are going to have to leap to get to this is a virtual reality, though their experiments are telling them that they don't like it and they're in denial for the most part. So it's going to take kind of a leap for them to, to bridge that gap right now that uh, they have because it is so contrary to the beliefs that science has had for the last 200 years that that's going to be a tough one. But once we get that one, I think the others will probably fall out reasonably easily. So yes, I'm interested in that that uh, that doing that physics. I think it's a key point. It's like the you know it's like you move this one log, and the log jam will break up and all flow downstream. But until you move that log, it's all just stuck there in a big jam. And I think the the uh, virtual reality is the log, and the physicist is the one that can unstick it. 
So that's why I put my attention there. But it's all about the little toe. It's about the people growing up is the whole reason that's important. Thank you very much. All right, Tom, listen, we're going to go over to Faith. Faith, we're going to give it one more go. If for any reason we can't hear you, then I will read your question out for you, one of your first ones. Give it a go. Thank you. Previously, you, you said we come back with traits of our character when we reincarnate. Are you referring to behavioral patterns? If so, wouldn't regression therapy be a useful tool to realize our patterns and correct them to avoid repeating the same? Well, yes, it can be. It can be, but um, yeah, the way that works is, you know, you get to keep whatever you learn, however you grow in this in this experience. Whatever, how much entropy you can reduce, how much you grow toward becoming love, or the other way, if you de-evolve, you know, how much you grow or or don't grow toward becoming fear. How much, whatever it is, you where you end this incarnation. That's the quality you'll start with with the next incarnation. So if you had certain kinds of fears when you end this one, the next one you'll be prone to similar kinds of fears. It doesn't mean the fear will be the same thing. You know, it, it could be expressed differently in your new incarnation, but it's going to be a, a similar basic sort of fear. So, yes, those things do come along. Now, the regression can take you back to where you can see what those problems were, perhaps more easily. There's a couple of problems there, though, that make it not quite so as effective as it might seem. One, if you haven't learned that lesson yet, it's really hard to see what that lesson is, even when you're looking back at another incarnation. In other words, let's say you had in the last incarnation really problems with anger. You got angry real easily. Things didn't go the way you wanted. You got angry. Okay. Now you may haven't gotten over that yet. So you still get tend to get angry and you go back and you look in a, in a, a past life regression and you can see that you had all this anger, but in your mind you say, yeah, well, but look at the situation. It justified all that anger. There's nothing wrong there. You see, you still may not see the problem if you haven't grown up enough to see it. So that's one problem. The other thing is that when you when you do get this information, if you have grown up enough to see the issue and you do get the information, you're getting it intellectually. You still have to take it out of that intellect and get it down to the being level before it's really going to affect you. So you've gotten information at an intellectual level that will probably point a direction, may help focus you on what it is you have to work on, may uh, you know give you direction, but it's not going to solve the problem for you until you grow up at the being level and and solve that that particular issue. So yes, the you know the uh, past life regression can be useful. Absolutely, it can sometimes give you a key to something, and depending on the individual, it can also not be useful at all. It can just not give you any hints, and the hints you do get, you can't apply them because you're not ready yet. You haven't gotten to the point where you're ready to make that growth step. So it depends on the individual how helpful, you know, that uh, regression would be. 
Thank you. Okay. All right, Faith, good. That's the first question done. We'll come back to you in a little while. I know you have a couple of others. Um, Tom, next we're going to do, uh, well, I'm going to read out three questions on fears. I don't know if you looked at the questions on fears. One of them I'm going to have to rephrase for it to make some sense. Um, you did a recent interview with Laurie Houston, News for the Heart, on resistance to fears. I am going to put this, uh, the website up for that on the chat here for people to see. Those of you watching at home, we should have it in the description below. You want to watch that, that is a great video. The, um, the first question on fear is from Ed. It's about confronting fears. He said, Tom, is it a good strategy to deal with one's fears by setting yourself up in situations so that you get to confront them directly? For example, moving away from your comfort zone, like moving to another job or organization when you feel that you're so comfortable with your current job or interactions with people within that organization, or by moving to another state or country just to up the level of uncertainty that you experience. Or is this all just a ploy of the intellect or the ego team to trick you into thinking that you're making progress in dealing with your fear but really, you need more difficult challenges. Thank you, Ed. Okay, it could be uh, either one. You see, that's part of the part of the way the game is played. You know, it could be either one. You might just be uh, intellectually uh, trying to pat yourself on the back, saying, "I'm doing such a good job. I need I need a harder I need a harder test. This test is too easy." On the other hand, it may be that you're missing you're missing the, um, the opportunities that are right there in front of you to grow up in things that, that uh, are right where you are now, you know, in your job, in your country, in your place, and you're not seeing them because you're not quite ready to grab hold of those yet. And then going to someplace else isn't going to make any difference. You're going to be in the same, you know, in the same predicament as far as your growth goes, but it sounds like maybe a worse predicament as far as your environment goes. So it, depends on the individual and the intent you see again it gets back to the action the thing you do isn't important isn't well it can be important but it isn't the most important thing it's why you do it so if you're making this this uh, choice to go do something harder and it's why you're making the choice if it's because of your ego then it's a it's a bad choice if it's not because of your ego, if it's because you say, well, I think I could be more helpful if I, you know, flew to Haiti after the, you know, after the hurricane and help people, that would be more useful other than I just sit here and, you know, in my rut doing the same things. And I'm not really growing. I'm not being challenged. Well, then volunteer, get on the plane or the boat and go to Haiti after the hurricane and help people. You see, if that's what you feel like you need to do. But if you're thinking about that, well, that would be a great, a good thing for me to do. You know, oh, what an uplifting thing. You know, I, you know, I'll do well. If it's all intellectual, you see, it's you're thinking that this is something you should do rather than at the being level, this is something you want to do, you need to do. It's, there's a difference there. And it, the, the value to you is going to depend on the, source of the intent what is that intent where does it come from if it's ego if it's belief if you do things because you believe you should you're not going to get so much out of them and if you do them because you know it's right that's what you have to do so i would say try to live more from your intuition try to deal with these kinds of questions should i do this or should i do that from an intuitive viewpoint rather from an intellectual viewpoint 
your intellect can argue both sides of the questions with equal, uh, you know, uh, uh, equal uh, vigor and equal uh, logic. That's not hard. That's what debaters do. They can they can debate any any side of any issue any time. That's what makes them good debaters. And your intellect is like that. So you can't really trust that intellect to give you an honest appraisal. It'll give you whatever it is it thinks you want to hear. So if you work from the intuition, it has to feel right. If it feels right that this is what you should do, then it's probably more likely that it is right for you to do. But I would say work at a feeling level. Now, a lot of people are very out of touch with their feelings and with their intuition. So you might have to spend some time getting more in touch with who you are, finding out who who is that character, you know, at the being level, you know, that uh, that's down there at the core of you and trying to get to know that person. If you and your, your core being level uh, get on better terms, then your intuition will suddenly be very good and something that you can, that you can use. All right. So, so Tom, that's confronting fears. What about dealing with fears? A spry writes that, uh, Tom, you often mention that courage is the antidote to fear. When faced with a fear, one should confront it, like you were just saying. But you also often mention that letting things go and being more comfortable with whatever happens is a good way to go. So when facing fears that require initiative, say jumping out of a plane or talking to a stranger, how should one balance these two ideas? In my experience, this is uh, in Spry's experience, forcing the courageous action is often so difficult that it undermines any sort of letting go or balance. Yet the alternative seems to lack courage. So in general, should one intentionally confront fear, sometimes at the cost of equanimity, or focus more on maintaining balance and ease and try to let fears just slowly unravel? Okay, now balance is important to maintain. Ease is not. It's not about ease and it's not about comfort. So if you kind of uh, think that I said that, you know, being comfortable and being at ease is important. That's not really what I intended to say. You probably heard me say something like you need to uh, uh, not try to manipulate the future. You need to accept it and and be able to deal with it and kind of go with that flow. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's easy or comfortable. But anyway, uh, these two things, again, it depends on what your motivation is. What is that intent? Why would you want to do that? Sometimes you can get your intellect up into, um, what, pretending to have courage? Your intellect, you can, you can get yourself all kind of psyched up, if you will. I'm going to do that. You know, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go get, you know, my parachute and fly up in an airplane and leap out. And even though you're frightened about it, you force yourself to do it and you get up there and you don't want to go, but somebody pushes you out and pulls the ripcord for you and you fall and you survive. And now you're not quite as frightened as you were before. Okay. That's, that's what happens. Those are people driving themselves to perform or to do, even though they are afraid. It's a, it's an intellectual sort of thing. That's not the courage I'm talking about. The courage I'm talking about is the courage to change. It's the courage to be somebody else. It's the courage to grow up when that's difficult. Uh, When you have a fear and you have a fear of whatever, uh, you know, being inadequate, let's say. You're insecure and you feel inadequate in lots of ways. You, You always are wondering whether or not you're measuring up, whether or not you're 
you know, smart enough, good enough, fast enough, you know, whatever it is to, to uh, do what it is you're doing. And are you worse than everybody else? You know, and you have this kind of, of uh, feeling. Well, the thing to do there, the courage that takes is just to go out and do. Go amongst those people and do what you can. Just do it the best you can and accept that that's what you're going to do. It's not about whether or not you're better or worse than anybody. It's just that you are going to do the best you can and that that's it. That's good. Accept that rather than say, well, best I can isn't good enough. You see, that's that's the problem. That's the cop out. So that's the kind of courage I'm talking about. So it's not a matter of, of um, should I just kick back and, and feel at ease or should I have the courage to go attack a problem? It's why do you want to attack that problem? Is it a growth problem or is it some other sort of problem? If it, is it an ego problem that you're trying to, uh, you know, to deal with? Um, you know, sometimes we people can make it a, a, an ego issue to do something difficult. And after they do that difficult thing, they kind of feel real good about themselves. Okay, you know, I ran the mile in less than, uh, you know, five minutes. All right, I worked real hard to do that, and now they feel real good about themselves. Well, that's okay, but that doesn't help you grow up any. You see, sometimes you can you can uh, screw up your courage for purposes of, of uh, your own ego, just because you can say that you did it. That's not all that useful. So again, it just depends on the individual and their motivations and why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, it might be time for you to reach out and grab that bull by the horn and wrestle it to the ground and to hell with, you know, what happens and you're just going to do it. Or it, that may be a foolish thing for you to do. You should maybe just, um, you know, not do that. And there's no way that anybody can tell you which is which. You have to come to that. And again, believe your intuition more than you believe your intellect because your intellect just isn't going to give you the straight story. That intellect doesn't do that very often unless you are completely in touch with your being level. Now, if you live out of your being level, then your intellect is a tool that is going to work for you and isn't going to just you know feed ego. But most of us don't work out of our being level. A lot of us don't even know who lives at our being level. We're not sure what that being level is. We don't really know who we are. We define ourselves in terms of you know, our jobs, our position, our, uh, you know, I'm mom, I'm dad, you know, I'm little brother, I'm the boss, you know, that sort of thing, rather than anything that has to do with the being level. So many of us aren't even acquainted with ourselves at that level. If you are, then the intellect is pretty dependable. If you're not, the intellect will, will tell you what you want to hear. So that's the second question. The third question is going to be on genetic fears. Um, question is from Zer Schmetterling, and they write, the, IO, the IUOC takes a part of itself, a free will awareness unit, to incarnate in this virtual reality. So I understand it then. This leads to the conclusion that a newborn child, say up to the age of around one or two, exists purely at the being level. Now, if you look at these children, you see that besides their trust in the world, general trust they have in the world, there are many fears. Fears of pain or getting hurt, for example, a vaccination needle, or fear of being left alone, especially by a parent. Fear of darkness, fear of unknown noises, or fear of critters such as insects, snakes, and spiders, or even of unknown food. These fears, uh, which science sometimes defines as genetic fears, 
have been with man- mankind since the time of the caveman, and these fears were, and some still are, necessary for survival. But what does that actually mean? Do other fears exist in a free will awareness unit at the being level, or are all our fears genetic and generic even? How do these genetic forms of fears fit into my big toe? Okay, these what you're calling genetic forms of fear aren't... Well, I guess they do have some basis in the genes and as much as the as the avatar sets the constraints for the consciousness. But basically, they are a fundamental kind of ubiquitous fundamental fear. Let's 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 talk about being insecure. OK, insecurity is a very fundamental sort of fear. You can express insecurity in a 100 different ways. Sometimes those ways you express it are completely opposite. You can be very insecure, and that may make you a bully, where you uh, you know are loud and obnoxious and push people around. Or you may be insecure, and you may be a wallflower, where you kind of go off by yourself and try to hide in a corner whenever you're in a social situation. Those are both expressions of being, uh, you know, of that same of that same issue. So you can take that insecurity and express it in many many different ways. So insecurity would be a fundamental problem that would be a part of your individuated unit of consciousness. Your individuated unit of consciousness is just not too secure. It's not sure of itself. It needs more experience, particularly more positive experience. Maybe it didn't do very well the last couple of times, and now it's very insecure about making bad choices, you see. So when you come in and you're insecure, then you tend to have reactions like uh, maybe afraid of the dark or loud noises or people you don't know or other such things. Now, this is what you will find that some infants show, these sorts of, these sorts of fears. Sometimes infants show fear and stress that's really very, uh, very strong. I uh, had a friend with a, with a little baby girl. This is many, many years ago. And anything that moved or or uh, basically wasn't kind of still and steady in that little child's environment her hands would go up like this which is a, a stress marker and she would kind of freeze and it'd be anything just reaching a hand out like this and passing it in front of her and she would go into this fear response well that was kind of excessive but other children have have uh, things like loud noises. Suddenly a firecracker goes off and the babies cry because that's not something they're used to and therefore it's unknown and therefore it's scary. Well, that's a fundamental insecurity uh, that they are feeling and they can come in with that. So it's not really so much that it's genetic. It's that, you know, the mind leads and the body follows. So the the, uh, consciousness has that and then that gets expressed in the physical system. Now you might say that uh, a, a, a proclivity to be anxious, you know, might be genetic in the sense that it gets passed down, and you can trace how great grandmother was was you know um, always stressed, and then the mother, and then the child, and you can say, well, there's a genetic cause here. That may be the case because some biochemistry is prone to some things, you know, to some actions or it's limit has limitations. And that's though things that you can work out. You're not really stuck with your genetics. 
the mind leads and the body follows. You know, the consciousness can modify that genetic structure and change it if it grows up and grows out of it. But that structure may be expressing a fundamental fear, a basic fear that the uh, consciousness has. It doesn't take long before the body readjusts to express a particular consciousness that's working with it. 